You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, we walk down the road to Watchmen. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and I will answer back no in a whisper, or whatever that line is. I don't know, I'm drunk. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I once had a great road trip with Adam Thomas in the winter of 1931. This is that story. <laughs> That's what we're doing here. But we're not the only ones on this road trip, Adam, because uh, we got somebody else here uh, pulled from the pages of Britain himself, returning to the show, Mr. James Rodriguez. James, what's up? Mom, is that guy recording a podcast? Is that Jesus? No, don't be so fucking stupid. <laughs> one of the great lines in the Watcher movie but James happy to have you on for a very monumentous episode we have a big announcement Adam to do right off the top um, of do this it? particular episode yes uh, yeah we do I'm sorry I didn't give you any notes for about any of these announcements I didn't talk to you at all whatsoever no yeah I don't appreciate that I'm completely in the dark here <laughs> yes so uh, a big thing is this episode is our two year anniversary we're releasing it just a couple days after the official date, which, like, our release dates on, like, iTunes and stuff like that kind of varied because of some weird stuff when we started the show. But May 10th was the date we posted the first ever episode. And so, yeah, well, this is officially marking two years. And uh, we're announcing a pretty big thing uh, that we've been kind of mulling over for about a year or so. And what we're announcing is uh, a Patreon over on patreon.com slash dedbpod, similar to our Twitter and Facebook accounts. Um, and... If you're unaware of what Patreon is, basically, it is a subscription service where if you, say, are a podcast or an artist or whatever, um, you can set up this thing where fans of yours can pay a certain amount of money per month or per episode, depending on what you set up, um, and, uh, you know, you get extra content for that. Every month starting this very day, we're launching it the day we're launching this particular episode out onto the world, uh, we are going to have our Patreon, where basically every month we will have polls where you guys can decide movies that we cover, and then also a bonus podcast episode a month, and the thing is, we're only asking for just a measly dollar. We might have more tiers as time goes along, and maybe add some more content, but as of right now, you only have to pay a single dollar a month in order to get all this bonus stuff, and really be a key part of the show. Just as much as we are. The main thing is, too, neither of us are comfortable with asking for lots of money from anybody. It's just, it's just nothing, you know, some people got $100 final a month Patreon goals. I mean, that's never going to happen here. Uh, a dollar, yeah, and you're going to get a lot of bonus stuff. A lot of cool stuff we would never do on the show itself. Uh, you know, we our, our show used to or start with, you know, film and or media discussion. 
well, with these bonus episodes, you will get some of those media discussions. We will get into TV series. We will potentially even talk about a video game or something at some point. Uh, you know, we're going to do trivia. We're just going to have fun with it, commentaries, all that stuff. Yeah, we're very uh, much in the planning phases still on what exactly each bonus episode will be done. Uh, but we're going to have one of those at least by the end of every month. Um, and the first one we're going to do, we can announce at least here to tie into this particular episode, is, uh, you know, we're doing the Watchmen film on this particular episode, and uh, we're also going to cover on the Patreon, the bonus episode, the first one will be us covering the nine-episode miniseries that uh, Damon Lindelof put out last year on HBO for Watchmen, because uh, I've seen it and I've praised it a couple times on the show. Adam, I believe, has yet to still see it. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet. Not the, Not for any lack of interest, just time really, but I will make sure I see it all. And so uh, that'll be out by the end of May on here. Um, and uh, keep in mind that episode also, if you're, say, a subscriber to the ESO Patreon, that'll also be on that particular feed for them, just as like a sort of preview for those of you um, who, you know, subscribe already to there. It's like, hey, why not also subscribe to us a bit? You know, a bit of a win-win. They get some content. We get some more people exposed to the fact we're doing the Patreon. Um, and keep in mind with this Patreon also, like the big thing, like, the main show will stay on Podbean and ESO. Always will be free. Like, we're not going to try and move that over to the Patreon and make it behind a paywall. There's just more additional stuff that you guys can participate in and listen to. Right, and it's a dollar for any, any of it. Any and all of it. Yes, yes. And so it'll be like that bonus episode a month, but also every two weeks on Wednesdays we'll be putting out polls uh, where you guys will get to choose, for example, on uh, the Wednesday after this comes out, so tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day it releases, on May 13th, we'll have a poll up there for um, my good choices for the upcoming Westerns episode we'll be doing. Um, and those choices, by the way, are Tombstone and Once Upon a Time in the West. So you all get to pick which one of those two we cover for that particular episode on the Patreon. It'll all be decided by you. And then later, um, on the last Wednesday of May, we'll also have a poll up that'll be uh, for an upcoming topic in June that you guys will get to choose as well. Also, just to keep in mind, um, any of the money that we get toward the Patreon will definitely be uh, just money that we use toward making the show better. Paying for hosting or getting new equipment, all of it will be funded toward that first and foremost. We're not going to buy yachts and shit yet. No, yeah, and I was potentially maybe even thinking about, you know, stickers at some point or T-shirts or anything like that, too. The money would just go towards that, funding that stuff. Not for us, though. T-shirts and stickers for us. Yeah, that's that's true. Not for any of your schmucks. No, 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 none whatsoever. And also keep in mind, don't feel you have the pressure to donate if it's going to cause you any hardship to the Patreon. Like, like Adam mentioned, like it's even if it's a measly dollar a month, it's definitely like something we don't want to pressure fans into doing. But this would at least help us out, especially in making the show even better than it already is. Even though it's so amazing right now, clearly two years it's been nothing but the best content whatsoever. Absolutely. Can't, can't, wouldn't change a thing. Not, not any guests. No, nothing. Especially any British guests who might have just clawed their way onto the show. Not at all. Whatsoever. Right. For a couple times now. And by the way, all that, all that like merch we're going to get for US addresses only. I just want to throw <laughs> that out there. Well, consider me not subscribing to your Patreon. Fuck you guys. Yeah, we don't take Monopoly money, buddy. <laughs> we want your dirty pounds anyway. What, that's like five cents to the dollar? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to pay in rubles, thank you very much. <laughs> of course, your, your illustrious ruble funds, yes. So, yeah, what... that the Legend of Zelda money? Um, anyways. <laughs> I've got a mine! <laughs> yes, yes, so we'll keep announcing stuff in the future, but yes, we have a Patreon, all sorts of bonus stuff uh, that you can subscribe to. Once again, patreon.com 
slash DEDBpod. But now that the announcement's out of the way, we can get into our topic for this special episode, which uh, we decided because, you know, in the past when we've done like our first episode ever was uh, Marvel movies and our one-year anniversary was MCU movies specifically, we decided to do specifically graphic novel adaptations, which, you know, there are plenty of films based on graphic novels, some more famous graphic novels, others that you might not be aware were, you know, the basis for these movies at all. Especially with tonight, we got, I think, one of each. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, your other alternate bad choice, my alternate good choice, I think fit that category as well. Right. Where I think we both came with two movies that nobody would never know they were based on a graphic novel. And two where it's like, painfully obvious yes yes for sure and uh james you decided to come on to this particular Mm -hmm. episode and uh, what kind of drew you to this one in particular well like anyone around my generation i got into comics and graphic novels through the three main players by batman spider-man and wolverine usually helped that they had film franchises and animated shows but they were essentially a gateway to get me into comics and transitioned me to trying out stuff like The Crow, The Walking Dead, Saga, and some of the best books I've ever read. The idea to come and talk about some graphic novel films was just too good to pass up. I mean, what am I going to do? Westerns? I have barely seen 10 Westerns in my life. <laughs> You're not from here. You would know. Just like that. <laughs> well, I put you guys in have cowboys over there. <laughs> Excuse me, they're not, they're not anthropomorphic cows at all, no? They're not? <laughs> no. You guys went straight from knights to, like, bodies. <laughs> uh, time lords. That's true. Yeah. Time lords are in the middle of that. Oh, that's true. Right. Plenty of time lords. I completely agree with that, especially I think this one of the movies we're going to talk about, uh, the big inspiration from even reading the source material, was because of some of those bigger, like, comic book-based film franchises. And mainly, like, I'm not as big of a comics person as, say, an Adam, but graphic novels have definitely been, like, sort of my thing I've glommed onto. Because it's always intimidating where it's like, oh, I should start reading X-Men. Oh, how about from all the way in the 60s or from, like, whatever other era? There's so much. As opposed to a graphic novel's a great self-contained thing I can just pick up and read a whole story of in that contained form and but adam obviously as i mentioned you're a pretty big comic book person so i'm sure you've read plenty of graphic novels and enjoyed the films yeah for the most part uh, i think the first graphic novel that i remember looking at was either the dark knight the frank miller book or maybe even the killing joke mm-hmm. uh it was definitely a batman one because i was very confused as we wait a minute this isn't like none of the characters from the the you know the weekly series really were the same, and especially the Frank Miller book. I was a little bit, like, confused. So this is a completely separate story from the main canon. Uh, and then once I was able to figure that out, then, yeah, that's where I started diving in with the Batman graphic novels, some of the Spider-Man ones, and then that sort of led me into the offshoots. And like you said as well, Thomas, you could also buy the collections. They were in graphic novel form, so I, that's how I read a lot of my earlier stuff. But then, like, Batman the Cult came out, and that was excellent. The Batman Houdini, excellent. History of Violence, Road to Perdition, The Watchmen, a bunch of the Bone books, Cerebus books. I mean, there was just great, great stuff out there. You know, a lot of people don't give a fair shake to because they're in comic book sort of style and form. But some of them are just brilliant stories with great character development and real, uh, you know, stakes and consequences and everything like that in them that unfortunately uh unless they're put in a movie a lot of people sort of don't pay attention to it yeah yeah or unless there's something like a watchman where it's like oh this is one of the new york times best selling things of all time it actually crosses over into being something considered literature it sort of separates it from that quote-unquote ghetto 
of like, oh, it's just comic book pablo. <laughs> Nothing that we can possibly read with these panels. Uh, spandex, I think not. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you mentioned uh, our two movies uh, that we're going to be talking about, uh, two of the basis is for them. So our good pick that we picked at the end of our last episode, if you're new, we pick um, a good and a bad feature randomly between two good choices, two bad choices from either of us. And so we had uh, our good pick end up being Adam's choice of Road to Perdition. And uh, my bad pick, somewhat controversially to some, uh, would be the 2009 adaptation of Watchmen by Zack Snyder. I'm some. <laughs> no, there's, that's a very divisive one, which we'll get into. But uh, let's start with the good one with uh, Road to Perdition. What's Papa's job? He works for Mr. Rooney. Who's got a hug for a lonely old man? He gave us a home, a life. Oh. <laughs> Michael, tomorrow when they find out we're gone, they're gonna come after us. I have to protect you now. Sons are put on this earth to trouble their fathers. Natural law. I cannot fight you and them at the same time. I can take care of myself fine. It's my fault this happened. It was not your fault. What are you going to do? Just one last thing, and then it's done. So Road to Perdition uh, came out July 12th, 2002, uh, from director Sam Mendes, uh, written by David Self, uh, who based it on the Paradox Press graphic novel uh, by Max Allen Collins and Richard Piers Rayner. And just to clear this up, uh, has anybody read the book? Nope. I did after I saw the movie. I actually read the book prior to doing this episode and actually rewatching the movie. Just out of curiosity for it. Um, and it gave me a whole new appreciation for the movie because it's a pretty mediocre gangster story to me in graphic novel form. Would you agree, Adam? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's just a stereotypical gangster story. Uh, the parts that are there that are maybe more different or off the beaten track are clearly the parts that made the movie so good. But yeah, in, in graphic novel form, it's kind of a bore. Yeah, and especially they really lean heavily on being like an untouchables kind of thing to the point where it's like, oh, look, there's Al Capone and Elliot Ness and all these people. Where like the only sort of somewhat famous person is Frank Needy, as played by Stanley Tucci here, who even then is like, he's like like B-tier sort of like understudy to Capone. And even Capone was originally going to be in the movie, and I watched the deleted scene with uh, Anthony LaPeggio. And uh, it just doesn't really fit in this particular story whatsoever. Yeah, and it's not that I didn't like the, you know, Anthony Apollia's Capone. That's totally fine with me. Yeah, it totally did not fit with the rest of the movie. That was just to be like, yeah, we are mobsters. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it, it does but, not uh, fit whatsoever, as opposed to, like, I do agree, like, reading the graphic novel, I can definitely see why, like, Richard Dizanuck, the big producer behind this, and a bunch of other people were like, there's a great idea in this particular book, it's just not the best executed overall in this form, and that definitely would fit better into a film. And James, of course, you haven't mm -hmm. read the book, but um, what are your thoughts on Road to Perdition? Well, this is actually my second time seeing it. First time my parents and I were in a supermarket, just saw DVD of Road to Perdition on the side and dad was like, oh, let's get this and watch this tonight. And I just remember we sat down not knowing what to expect and just blown away by the story. And now I've given it a rewatch and it's just as wonderful as I remember. Just a lovely father and son tale of them having to open up and reconnect with one another. And they just seem to be pushed on by some horrible circumstances. 
Yes, yes. And Adam, this was your choice, so clearly you agree with uh, the adaptation and how it turned out. Oh, yeah, dude. No, I absolutely fell in love with this movie the first time I saw it. For several reasons. One is, on, on acting alone, this is by far probably the most intimidating Tom Hanks has ever been in a movie. Especially the scene where he goes down, he's like, you know, who are you? And he introduces himself. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Should I search you? I think it's probably a good idea that you do. <laughs> like, you know, that type of shit. And then, of course, Paul Newman. I mean, what this was his last performance, I believe, was it not? His last live-action performance, he would appear yeah. in the cinematic opus of Cars after this. Oh, how could I forget? Of course. But yeah, <laughs> how Yikes. great Paul Newman is and Jude Law just being creepy and weird. And fucking, this is the first time I've ever seen Daniel Craig. And uh, I just thought he was such a fucking sniveling prick. Mm. And then Superman. I mean, that kid turned out to do all right for himself. Yes, uh, yeah, t- Tyler Hoechlin, who would later play Superman in the reason, like, Supergirl, uh, DC Universe stuff, which I didn't notice that until I was watching this time. Like, that kid has, like, such a square jaw, and it's so familiar. And it's like, it's that fucking kid. Such a well-cast movie, I completely agree. Down to Daniel Craig, who, yeah, this is the first time I saw him in anything, even to the point where he was announced as Bond, and I'm like, that guy looks familiar. And it's like, oh, he's the sniveling asshole brother, too, <laughs> from Roger Perdition. That's amazing. So I think Sam Mendes is a really talented director, but I don't think he's really ever topped this movie. This this is only his second feature, because he did American Beauty before this. And then after, he would do, like, Jarhead, and recently 1917. And I always think he's such a technically professional filmmaker, but rarely he does he have, like, a really emotional, palpable story like he does here. And I think it's so phenomenally put together, and especially it's uh, it was nominated for a bunch of awards at the time. Mm. Like, Paul Newman was nominated uh, for supporting actor, production design, score, sound mixing, sound editing. And it won for cinematography from uh, Conrad L. Hall, who died right before he, this the ceremony, and he ended up winning posthumously. And this is a guy who shot stuff like, all the way, speaking of Paul Newman, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and you know, American Beauty. It's I feel like this is sort of like the last film of like sort of the era where stuff was shot on film consistently that looks like this particularly classic like this is 2002 mm. this is right before like this is the same year as attack of the clones first ever like did digitally shot film and i feel like this is sort of like the last dying breath the traditionally film shot movies in all honesty it's in such a gorgeous way the way it looks the way it's shot the way it's framed the the color palette everything it looks correct to the period that it's supposed to take place in as well. Mm. It's so expertly done. And that's when it's good cinematography and good lighting and good things like that, where you instantly, you're like, oh yeah, I'm back in, you know, 1920s Prohibition era. It's not super polished, like you said, digitally. Like, you can do a gangster movie now, but if you do it digitally and don't try to do any of those tricks, you never really feel like you're part of the time that it's supposed to take place in. Key example is uh, Michael Mann's Public Enemies. It's like the Public Enemies, absolutely. Uh, Gangster Squad was another mm-hmm. one. But yeah, no, I absolutely love the way this movie shot. I love the score, too. I think the score to this movie is so wonderfully done. And it's ultimately, you are watching just a father and son bonding road trip movie. Uh, it's just, it has such high stakes and danger present at all times. Yeah, I agree. This whole film is about fathers and sons and the need to communicate, to open up with one another. And I think this is perfectly set up in the piano playing scene where you can't see the bond between Paul Newman's John Rooney and Tom Hanks's Sullivan. They're playing the piano like a real father and son, but John Rooney's real son, Daniel Craig's 
slimy dick is just looking on also jealous just all it's a fucking joke and i think that just captures it so well and sets up the core conflict that's gonna cause everything to just explode yeah, and that's what's so interesting, especially like reading the graphic novel, is that all that stuff with the the Roonies, or as they're called, the Loonies, which was like a real gang and stuff, that's not at all in there. Like, that relationship between those three characters is not present. Like, it's just a stereotypical, like, oh, but you're trying to kill my son, who's like a real toady Dick Tracy character kind of thing. And it's, it's so, like, typical run-of-the-mill. And that relationship being so fleshed out beautifully is like a keystroke why it's such a better adaptation. Yeah, the it's very meow, see? Meow. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. But no, I, I completely agree. And uh, that scene alone that James just referenced where, you know, they're playing the piano together, and not for anything, I didn't notice Daniel Craig's slimy dick. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> I don't know what, what version you were watching. I haven't seen it, but I imagine that's probably accurate. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Yes, no, that scene, absolutely. And it just Daniel Craig, first of all, does anybody have, like, bluer eyes than Daniel Craig? Like, piercing eyes? I mean, they're fucking just, they're amazing. And, can, and when he really is using them, it's so effective. And that scene, you're like, oh, dude, he's going to fucking go after Tom Hanks. Like, there's no question. Like, this fucker's going to make a play. A graphic novel, you're 100% right. Yeah, see, you killed my son, see? Yeah, copper. Like, it's so funny. it's so fucking stupid. Yeah, and, and and even like even the warmth that's portrayed between Tom Hanks and his son really isn't there as much. There are scenes like straight from the book, like even the whole um, teaching him how to drive thing. But this is after like a big stupid shootout sequence that happens when he sees up uh, Frank Nitty, which I love in like that scene. How understated this whole movie is in that particular scene. It's just like my hat in my hand. I'm trying to like say something to you and see if we can like come to some understanding. It doesn't work, and Tom Hanks leaves. Just imagine like in the like, right after that, it's like a big Brian De Palma shootout. He's, like, slipping down banisters and shit. It's so dumb. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, detective whatever and the killer. Just, just, just it's a John Woo movie happening. It truly is, though. I'm so glad they, they decided to really minimalize all of the action, really. And just keep it more drama-focused. The trouble is with, like, a gangster movies around this time, like you mentioned, like, a Public Enemies or a Gangster Squad, is they want to key into all that stuff in, like, a glorified way, sort of glorifying mm-hmm. all those actions. Supposed to this movie, it's not about that. It all comes from, like, desperation from these characters. Even that, like, a Paul Newman who has so much power. It clearly comes from, like, a very feeble sense of just, like, I want to protect my son. Like, it comes from the sort of almost, like, primal instinct of just trying to protect what they have. One thing I notice is that Tom Hanks' character seems to only use violence and especially gunplay as a last resort. I completely agree with you on that, James, because especially in the in the graphic novel, which I don't want to just keep comparing it, but in the graphic novel, that character is specifically identified as like, oh, he's the most badass guy ever that like is like the coolest gun player, all this other shit. They really hype him up as opposed to... I like the fact that Tom Hanks almost knows all of that, but doesn't want to convey it because he always does want to kind of like take the other route. I, I agree, and... The the real smart thing they did, too, was make everybody else, you know, all the side characters that know of him and know his reputation, treat him like the most dangerous man in the room and treat mm-hmm. him like they were kind of scared of him. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to be such a bad as his reputation has already far preceded him. Possibly. Yeah. You know, and, and, I mean, he is without a shadow of doubt. We are talking about a stone cold killer. I mean, he is a hitman for the Irish mafia. He's a murderer. 
it's a way of saying so much without showing it all the time and dumbing it down for us. Yeah, right, exactly. You don't need to see him hanging out the window with a Tommy gun all the time and shit. You get the idea, this guy's done some shit. I guess to go into some of the other stuff, I think we, we talked briefly about him, but my favorite character in all this, my favorite performance, is Jude Law, which just was very against type for him. Like, all these characters are kind of like actors are playing against type to some degree, like a Tom Hanks being a bit more brutal, or even Paul Newman being a bit more sinister. I, I love Jude Law, though, because this is around the time, like, this is after, like, Talented Mr. Ripley, and everyone's like, oh my god, he's like the hot new thing. And, like, a couple years later, you'd have 2004, where he was in, like, six movies in a year, because everyone really tried to make him happen. And I love this particular role, which... He plays, like, the slimy, weaselly dude who's not in the graphic novel at all, either. Like, that character's com- a complete invention for the screen. And it's such an improvement. I just love how weaselly and slimy... That whole scene at the diner with him talking to Tom Hanks while he's, like, opening up his uh, camera and stuff like that. He sort of, like, tried to weasel himself away from roles like this a lot. Where he's like, oh, no, I want to emphasize, like, my leading man qualities. But I like that in recent years he's gone back to sort of this kind of role. He- he's, like, a very handsome character actor. I'm glad he's embracing that now. Because he did so well here. Yeah, I agreed. And the idea of what he is and what he does, like, he's a crime scene photographer who's also just a psychopathic hitman and the teeth they put on him the way he talks the understated the way he even rolls his cigarettes the way he's got like a sort of a shuffle when he walks like almost like a limp uh he's very very scary and the idea to put him in this little bowler hat and everything like it just makes him sort of unassuming looking but he's so dangerous and creepy and weird yeah, Jude Law seems to have this unnerving energy about it where you just look at him and you get shivers. And I think his best scene is the aforementioned moment in the diner where it's just a tense standoff between these two men who are aware of who the other is and are thinking, yeah, I'm sure you know who I am, but they're trying to keep up the pretense. They're kind of going back and forth and they're trading like this this sort of idea of like, oh no, we're totally like just two strangers randomly meeting when they know exactly who each other are. Mm. It's just like they know exactly what's going on. There's just like guns under the table kind of thing. And I love how that's displayed with like particularly Tom Hanks having that one bead of sweat on the side of his face. A single bead that's like so perfect. This thing is like, in terms of a graphic novel adaptation, like really watching it this time, even though some of the stuff isn't in the book... Um, it, it shows so much of like all oh, these singular details feel like they come straight from a graphic novel, just how particularly mm-hmm. precise they are, which I think comes from Sam Mendes, who's such a great detail oriented director. Like even in, of course, after this, he'd work with Daniel Craig and uh, Spectre and Skyfall. There are certain details with those two movies where it just shows like, oh, every single frame's like a painting almost with small insular details. And the most beautiful painted scene has to be the gunfire in the rain. So good. It's so fucking great. It's a beautiful scene from the way the rain is just shot to you can see every emotion on everyone's faces from John just knowing he's cut. He's not letting this go. He's going to kill me. And John realizing I'm going to have to kill this father figure, this man I looked up to when I had no one. And the way he just it's his gunfire, you see, initially until he comes out and you see full on his face every bit of heartbreak but knowledge of what he must do even if the people are watching it's so fucking beautiful and it has that old school rain where the crew looks like oh you shot this with like milk or some other like watery material yes and it shows every single drop really shows off and how each one's picked off one by one and paul newman is just like sitting standing there in front of the car and all this other stuff and just the that fucking line just of i'm glad it was you 
and all this other stuff. It gets you really emotionally swept up in this, like, gangster story in a way that, once again, if they were more true to the graphic, they'll be like, you'll never catch me, copper! And all this other <laughs> bullshit that wouldn't fucking work. I want to reiterate how fucking great Paul Newman is in this movie. A, he comes off so fatherly and loving to Tom Hanks' character. Kind of cold to Daniel Craig, but you can tell there's still father-son love there. Just the subtleties in his performance and the way he carries himself. A, there's no question, he is in control. He's very, very dangerous. He's very, very intimidating, but he's got such a warmth to him. There's no question he's going to you know, give this little boy a hug and maybe give him a quarter out of his pocket or whatever the hell. And then go behind the, the next door and tell somebody to go kill his uncle. A man keeps his word. Right, exactly. Fucking, yeah, so and even there's an earlier scene where like after Daniel Craig kills them and then uh, Paul Newman like berates him and like almost beats him with his two fists like, oh, I cursed the day you were born. And then eventually goes into a hug. That just says everything about the character. Mm-hmm. Daniel Craig's crying and, you know, I'm sorry, Pop. I'm so- you just murdered a wife and child, you piece of shit. <laughs> Or God, even the, the earlier scene where they have like the meeting of all the mobsters after he kills that one guy and the sort of the impetus for all the events, and he just is like, uh, "Gentlemen, I'd like to say I'm sorry. You'd like to say you're sorry again?" And he just like beats the table and shit. So good. <laughs> so, so fucking good. <laughs> I love that scene so much. Oh man, he is not the man with whom to fuck. And despite all that, Daniel Craig is still thinking he's the man that's gonna take over. He's like. Oh, my man is an. My dad's an old man. I'm the future. And even with all the beratings and all the fuck ups and all the just descent into violence which he causes, he's still so self absorbed and has such a high opinion of himself. He's one hell of a guy. <laughs> a, a great dude. Ten out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ten out of ten. Connor is Bay. Um, no. <laughs> There's no, there's no question that, uh, you know, the, the way things were back then, he would have taken over. Paul Newman wanted Tom Hanks to take over or whatever. Once he was gone, that's it. Connor was next in line. There was no question. The Empire would fall. There's no question. No, yeah, if it has sort of like the same sort of effect that years later we would enjoy, some of us would enjoy on like a Game of Thrones. In terms Gladiator. of like the, the Gladiators. Well, yeah, just these st- struggles about like these big sort of, uh, kingdoms or empires or even crime syndicates all boil down to like basic sort of petty jealousies we have from like childhood and even especially an, an, a great scene where Paul Newman is sort of genteel in a way that feels more traditional to his style is when he confronts Tom Hanks for the last time before that shootout in the like basement of that church and just talking about like well I guess I'm losing another son it's like oh god <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, he loves him. yeah but at the same time fuck you like, yeah, that's, that's the true, thing yeah. about the character, too. At the same time, fuck you, though. Because you still protected the guy who killed his wife and kid. Right. You're still, you're still a piece of shit, too. Like, let's not... I mean, you didn't pull the trigger, but you didn't exactly do anything to rectify the situation, either. There's a lot of mixed he, emotions in that that I really, like, particularly like. There's a lot of complexity mm-hmm. in the emotion, even though the story's very simple. That's what I love about this. Yeah. That's what Sam Mendes was attracted mm-hmm. to, was thematically and emotionally. There's so much to be attracted to with the story against like sort of a very simple gangster plot and the way paul newman's character just tries to reason it or with that brilliant line there are only murderers in this room as though hey we've all killed what does this one make a difference Mm -hmm. yeah it's a fucking kid you piece of shit 
we haven't emphasized enough on like the great relationship between Tom Hanks and uh, Tyler Hoechlin. I think their back and forth is so much about like really grounding the bigger crime stuff about this movie into a great father-son relationship that James was kind of referencing as well. Even down to like the whole sequence where they go over to after Tom Hanks has been shot. And they go over to uh, that one little barn house area, and Tom Hanks gets, like, healed up and all that other stuff. A great improvement over in the graphic novel, he's just like, oh, I robbed a bank and some lady got shot. And I brought her over to this, like, random doctor's house to try and heal up. The two characters have a lot more time to, like, really hang out with each other and have the son care for the father and all this other stuff. It's so great. Such a great sort of reversal on that. And it gets down to, you know, at that ending... I fucking cry oh, every time. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that... oh it's awful. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. And the good, the great thing about the relationship, too, is you definitely get the idea that uh, Tyler Holcomb's character was almost the forgotten son in Tom Hanks' yes. eyes. Mm. Right. You know, he, he was definitely more geared towards the younger brother. He was more fond of him. But through this crazy journey that they become, realize they're not that different. Maybe that's why he sort of didn't look at him the same way he might have the younger one because he saw too much of himself. But that fucking ending, I mean, I'm even thinking about it now. Huh. <laughs> like, huh. It's a face <laughs> moistener. Particularly uh, the makeup decision to have after that great year that happens with another person we haven't mentioned, but Dylan Baker as the snooty dude. Oh, like, oh. I wanted my egg runny. Points for uh, punctuality. Minus everything for cooking. Um, but, like, after that whole shootout scene... <laughs> what a fucking piece of shit. A real piece of shit. But um, then Jude Law has that great shootout that happens, and Jude Law gets, like, his face fucked up, and then when he shows up later, and he's got, like, staples all over his fucking face, basically. It's so creepy looking. And the whole fact that he kills Tom Hanks, and then there's the shootout sort of thing that happens with him, the standoff between him and the son, and how that resolves. It's so perfectly put together. In a way, it's a happy ending, because Tom Hanks, yeah, he's bleeding out, he's dying, but his wishes happened. Young Michael's not going to become a killer like him. He's was so afraid that Michael was going to be too much like him and go down this road of violence. And in that fateful moment, he was proven wrong. And Michael's going to have a non-violent life, we hope. Yep, and especially how Tom Hanks' last words are just, I'm sorry. He just keeps repeating, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and, and even like with the little epilogue bit I love so much where he just does like people ask if he was a good man or a bad man. I just tell him he was my father. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, before Adam just cries his eyes out, we need to get on to our next feature. So let's do final thoughts here. James, our guest, your final thoughts on Road to Perdition. I think this is just a beautiful film. It's a story about fathers and sons which is more about the heart of the characters than it is the violence which you traditionally see within the genre. It's just so damn wonderful. Yeah, Adam, your final thoughts on Road to Perdition? <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know if I can. Oh god. No, it's a it's a beautiful movie, you know. It's it's one of my favorite uh not only graphic novel adaptations but one of my favorite gangster style movies too, uh, just because it is so against the grain of the usual. There's there's not many sort of gangster style movies like this, if any, really. Uh, I just think it's a it's damn nigh a perfect film. It's it's so well acted, and for it to be Paul Newman's last on screen performance, and for him to give it just as much gusto as he does, I mean that alone is a sight to behold. I absolutely love this movie. I, I think it's easily 
a very underrated film too, where not a lot of people have seen this. No, yeah, I agree. I think it's been kind of lost to time. It was more of a bigger deal when it came out, and sort of like sort of the Oscar stuff around it. And now it's kind of disappeared. And the way that I do agree, it's a it's a bit upsetting. I would I would love to see more people kind of discover this movie if this show could even do that. You know, we, it's it's what we love doing on this show. Honestly, is just being able to expose certain movies to people who might not be aware of them. I love hearing that anytime we do. Please send that feedback ever if you can. <laughs> of just yeah. like, hey, I, I watched this movie for the first time because of you guys, and it's a great movie. And I appreciate you guys turning me on to it. And I, I do agree. I, I love this. It's one of my favorite Tom Hanks movies in general. It's one of my favorite gangster movies. It's such a great story that, like, with other gangster movies, I always have this sort of impetus of, like, okay, the style really works, but it just never really hooks me emotionally. It's why I think The Untouchables is vastly overrated. The hot takes. Absolutely. Sean Connery, awesome. The rest of it, meh. Yeah. <laughs> even, even down to, like, you could have had a Robert De Niro-style, you know, Al Capone performance in this movie, and it would just not work. It wouldn't really gel with this, like, really subtle, nuanced relationship movie featuring, you know, gangsters. It just does such a f- great job with all that, and it really gets you mostly swept up in a way that few gangster movies even manage to do. Um, so it's it's phenomenal, and like I said, after reading the graphic novel, I have so much more appreciation for it as an adaptation. And uh, we'll get to another adaptation in a second, but here is an ad, actually, for, you know, we announced our Patreon here. Uh, ESO also has a Patreon that you can donate to, and here's a bit about that. Everyone these days could use a little support, and your friends at the ESO Network are no different. With the ESO Network Patreon, the cool thing is, is when you help support us, it's you who will benefit. With four tiers starting for as little as 25 cents a week, you can listen to some of your favorite network podcasts early, hear exclusive content, maybe get some ESO swag, or even possibly take a shot at the geek seat. All you need to do is sign up at patreon.com backslash ESO network. All right, and now we're going to get into the Zack Snyder magnum opus adaptation of Watchmen. Watchmen. One of us died tonight. What do you suggest we do about it? Retribution. We can save this world. Why would I save the world? I no longer have any stake in it. will look up and shout save us no whisper no so uh watchman uh of course is from uh, director zack snyder visionary director zack snyder as all the uh fucking trailers touted big quote marks big, big quotation marks around that one maybe, maybe not no yeah yeah and uh it is written by alex tess and also david hater who you might know as the voice of Solid Snake in the fucking <laughs> Metal Gear Solid video games, which is so weird. Yep. It's like his only yep. screenwriting credit, um, which is based on, of course, the graphic novel by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. Uh, and, of course, uh, it's a Watchmen, as we kind of mentioned at the start of the show, classic graphic novel. I believe we've all read it here, gentlemen, and we can agree that it sort of deserves its status. Yeah, I've actually read this one, and admittedly, I read it first time in my teens, and I was just like, oh, it's cool, but... I didn't get what was going on underneath. I read it recently and I was just blown away and I was like, yeah, now I get it. And Adam, you would agree with that, obviously. Uh, yeah. okay. Yes. Yes. I, I understand its importance. I understand that it is, uh, you know, sort of groundbreaking for its time and things like that. Uh, it's just, 
To me, personally, hot take, not as hot as your Untouchables take, I do feel it's a little overrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think there are better, even Alan Moore stories out there than this one. I do like it quite a bit, but I don't think it's like the be-all, end-all. I think it has that reputation, I agree, in a way, especially I think the film also kind of hyped that up a lot with like you know all these interviews with Zack Snyder just being like, it's the, it's the classic graphic novel, it's the only one kind of thing. Like It's the unfilmable graphic novel, like that right. was a big thing. Too, yeah. Which, to be fair, at the, like there were so many different attempts at actually making it a production in the sort of twenty years between when this was published to when Zack Snyder made it, because there was going to be one in the eighties that Terry Gilliam was going to do. There was going to be uh, Michael Bay was trying to do one. Uh, Paul Greengrass, oh, <laughs> Tim Burton, Darren Aronofsky. Which, honestly, of those, I would have wanted to see the Darren Aronofsky version. That w- would have been very fascinated by that attempt out of any of those well i don't know gilliam could have been really dope too well especially if it but was the, in the 80s where like they were actually trying to yeah. get like schwarzenegger to play dr manhattan and shit yeah, oh my yeah. god do you think schwarzenegger would have been swinging dong i would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he'd have to be right just painted blue entirely as well so just like batman and robin schwarzenegger but with dick swinging yeah you know basically his mr freeze was kind of what we got of <laughs> fucking dr manhattan she asked me if it's because she's aging. I said no. You said first time I lied to her. <laughs> I'm interested in the Paul Greengrass version because so much leaked about that. Like Paddy Considine was going to be Rorschach and it was going to be more updated for um, George W. Bush and being more relevant with that. I, at the very least, I would have been very interested to see how he would have pulled that off. But Zack Snyder took more of, like, a faithful approach in his adaptation. Like, he would literally have the graphic novel on set for, like, actors to read or cinematographer to look at. And I give so much credit to at least, like, that's a hard thing to do. Like, obviously other movies have done this around this time, like Sin City and other things. And I appreciate at least that attempt. Um, and especially at the time I did. Like, if, if without this movie, I wouldn't have read the graphic novel. Because I still remember seeing the uh, trailer that had the Smashing Pumpkins song in front of it in front of The Dark Knight. Um, and being instantly just like, what the fuck is this? This looks great. Like, I've told the story of how I watched that that movie twice in a row in one fucking day at the theater, and at least 20% of the reason why I did that was to see that trailer again. Because it's such a phenomenally put-together trailer, and I think that's kind of my problem with the movie now, revisiting it, especially after, like, the impetus was during quarantine. I reread the graphic novel, and I decided, you know what, I should rewatch the movie. We're gonna do this episode. I might as well, like, see if it would be a potential pick or not. And it is to me because I feel like despite having so many things so close to the book, it has so many problems that show I don't I think that Zack Snyder loved the images but didn't get the satirical intent that well at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you gentlemen agree? To me, it felt like it was wanting to be faithful and really pay reverence to this almighty tome which is considered so important to the genre. But I feel something got lost in the translation, and I don't think Snyder captured the wit and what the graphic novel delivered so well. Now take take it to church, James. Do it, yeah. Preach. Preach, brother. But I guess we'll have Adam do his counterpoint. (laughs) First of all, I just have to ask one question. The ending obviously was completely changed from the graphic novel to Mm. what this is. Uh, Do you guys think the ending in the movie is better or the graphic novel ending? Vastly prefer the graphic novel ending. Vastly. 
I think the film ending is a lot cleaner, but I kind of miss the alien weirdness of it. Okay, I, I don't disagree with the idea of the alien weirdness could be cool, but I do think this makes more sense. The ending in this movie, to me, makes a lot more sense. Makes more sense that Ozymandias would plan on that, to me, than create some giant stupid squid alien monsters. Now, there are things that I do have a problem with in this movie, of course. Uh, a, the obnoxious sex scene, first of all, is, I mean, come on, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, Hallelujah, Adam. I will give it that. That is ridiculous. What are you talking about? It's clearly about how Patrick Wilson's dick is so heavenly, it makes you just go hallelujah. Preach. You got a lot of dicks on the mind tonight, buddy. (laughs) Oh, gee, I wonder if it's due to a three-hour film which had dick swinging about. Way more dick swinging than even the graphic novel did. Yeah. Uh, But I will say, uh, I thoroughly do enjoy this movie. It's a very, very, very good adaptation of what I do think is an unfilmable source material. I don't think you could get all the nuance, all the sort of dark humor, all the political subtext, all the strange and weird shit that happens in the book in a movie. I don't think it could be done. I honestly don't. I I think this is a genuine swing and a fucking, it's not necessarily, maybe not a home run, but it's a grounding homer. Like it didn't leave the park, they raped all four bases. It's easy to follow. It's not confusing. Some of the acting in it is spotty, but some of the acting in it is fucking great. I think Jeffrey Dean Morgan steals the show. Jackie O'Haley is quite good as Rorschach. I think Matthew Good is just so bizarre as Ozymandias, just the way he talks and moves. But I think he's intriguing to watch. Patrick Wilson is, you know, he's sort of vanilla in everything he's in. Malin Ackerman, eh, she tried. But Billy Crudup as Manhattan, perfect. The voice is perfect. But no, I, I think there's a lot of things in this that that arguably really, really work. I, I Is there problematic stuff in it? Of course. A lot of problematic when you really think about it. But it's also trying to stay as faithful to the source material as possible. So I'm glad they didn't change some of it. You know, it, it, it should be controversial. It should make you, like, sort of feel a little gross in scenes and it should elicit those responses. But I'd, I'd say this is Zack Snyder's second best movie that he's ever done. Until the Snyder cut of Justice League have arrives. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe to some people that's not saying a lot because there is a steady drop off. Absolutely fine movie. I saw it in the theater twice, but I've only seen this, the theatrical version several times. The director's cut version is a little bit too bloated, I will say. Yeah, that is, I guess, important also to say. Like, I watched not only the director's cut, which is the version I own uh, before this, but I also watched the ultimate cut, which includes all the shit with the Black Freighter, which was originally released as, like, a DVD thing. And, uh, yeah, even Zack Snyder admits, like, that version just didn't quite work together. Because he wanted to do, like, the Black Freighter as, like, a live-action thing, just more stylized, like, 300 um, which I think would have also been a mistake <laughs> just on every level. <laughs> I think I agreed with you more about sort of like, hey, you know, being so faithful and doing it as well as it does. I appreciated that a lot more at the time when it came out than I do now because I think in the process of like sort of copying things so exactly, um, it just ends up, I think, feeling kind of cold, especially when Zack Snyder puts his isms into it. Like right from the start, you have the whole comedian fight which I feel like it has a lot of accuracy to the graphic novel, except for the fact that, like, oh, the comedian has superpowers now. He can punch through walls and shit. 
Like, what I liked about the original graphic novel so much was the idea that these characters, except for Dr. Manhattan, were mostly just very human and grounded. Uh, and they, there's not a lot separating them between, like, the citizens that are quote-unquote protecting. And there's a lot more sort of morality gray and interesting stuff there. As opposed to, like, oh, no, these people are fucking badasses. They look at Night Owl fucking, like, twirl around in the prison and kick somebody in the face. Or Malin Ackerman as Silk Spectre does a lot of the same stuff. They know martial arts! <laughs> no, but, like, it goes even, like, to an over-the-top degree in a Zack Snyder slow-mo style that I think oh, just, yeah. I think, really goes beyond, like, it makes these characters feel less like interesting grounded humans, especially when they actually talk to each other. Like, I agree completely with, like, not just Malin Ackerman got a lot of shit at the time, but I loathe the chemistry between her and Patrick Wilson. And I like Patrick it's... Wilson, usually. I just think, like, that yeah. shit is so key into the story, and it doesn't fucking work at all. They're there there is forth. no chemistry. It's non-existent. No. And even then, also, Patrick Wilson is supposed to be, like, that character is supposed to be, like, a schlubby dude. And even when he's, like, out, like, he's naked and it's supposed to be, like, oh, I'm look kind of pathetic. It's, like, it's Patrick Wilson with, like, 20 extra pounds on him. He doesn't look, like, at all pathetic whatsoever. He looks like fucking Patrick Wilson skipped a week at the gym. I don't feel like it does a lot to, like, really advance a lot of the patheticness that Alan Moore put on these characters in the original story. You can tell, like, Alan Moore had no real connection to the production and Dave Gibbons was more involved and it feels a lot more like Zack Snyder loved the images so much and it's just like the words will keep them to the same but fuck it whatever doesn't matter yeah I agree with the idea that this Patrick Wilson is schlubby and a pathetic guy to the point that he's so ingrained with being a superhero doing all these amazing acts and just wearing that muscle-bound looking costume that he can't get an erection unless he's actually been out and done some superheroing and i think the graphic novel really puts this across well in the end after big final squid attack he's felt so powerful in that suit but in the face of adrian's horrific plan he has to shed the suit and huddle up naked with laurie just to feel something as opposed to in the movie he looks like fucking batman in the suit he just he looks like a fucking straight up batman type character in a way that feels like it's completely drowning out the point of that character entirely exactly and in when it comes to the final scene he's not so pathetic and like oh my god i can do nothing he goes for ozymandias and it feels like a more machismo way to go about how he's feeling and it's like go on just Give him a glare. That'll do. And I don't know. It just feels like a missed opportunity for me. But maybe it's down to what you can actually put in a film that audiences can resonate to. Well, like I said, you know, in my brief, not as violent diatribe as I expected. um, (laughs) (laughs) I I definitely kind of agree with Patrick Wilson, uh, period, in this part. And I do like Patrick Wilson as well. But I do think the the Night Owl character was the character that got lost in translation the most. Because um, he's supposed to be the everyday man. The the guy who, even look at it like this, who was a professional wrestler for 30 years, working out in the gym all the time. And then he hasn't worked out in 10 years. His body's gone to shit. He has no sense of pride anymore. He's Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler, basically. You know, Night Owl, where he's got... he's. He's still hanging on to the past. It's the only way he can sort of, like you said, even get a sexual arousal. Uh, he's still going to see the original Night All for beers all the time and 
trade war stories and you know whatever he can do to sort of hold on to it uh and he's almost afraid of the power of going back to it because i think it possesses him you know absolute power corrupts absolutely and it, it sort of possessed him to the point where he's so excited about the prospect of it he's so excited by it but he's he's just now starting to sort of finally revert to a normal life that he's intimidated about the prospect of going back to being that again, uh, especially at his age with the way his body is and everything else. And I do feel that they, they sort of kind of cocked that one up. Like it, it's sort of just, yeah. But, but nah. even some, some of the other characters are like, I agree yeah. with you that Jack Earl Haley and Jeffrey Dean Morgan are the best of the cast for sure. Mm-hmm. In terms of taking those roles and really adapting them to the screen pretty well. But I think it's all in spite of, I think, a lot of choices they make for either of those characters in the, the actual film adaptation, where despite how close it is, like the comedian, any of the big violent scenes are so overglorified by Zack Snyder, the way he shoots in like the Vietnam sequence, he's using the flamethrower. It's very clear he's just like overindulging in the style. I think that's the point. I think the point is to show that the comedian really celebrated the violence and loved it and enjoyed it so much. And to him, anytime he was doing it, it's like he was in a fucking action movie. Right, but I would argue Zack Snyder is shooting it in a way where he's glorifying that same violence without any of the satiric intent that you're talking about. Well, I just don't think it lands. I don't think it lands. I think maybe the intent was there, but I don't think it lands. Right, because I just think he loves that his style so much that was so like prevalent, especially after 300. And I think it's even similar to like stuff with Rorschach. Like I think the sequence where there's a flashback that he reveals about like the dog split in half and stuff like that. They make a key mm. change in terms of having the the pedophile guy come in, admit that he did it, and then Rorschach kills him and says like dogs get put down. Not in the graphic novel, and I think that sort of hurts this movie to a degree with, like, that character, where it's like, oh, you're giving Rorschach more of, like, a slightly sympathetic edge, in terms of, like, he knows that this guy completely admits to it, and all this other stuff, as opposed, and kills him so directly, in a way where it feels like Rorschach in this movie, despite being, you know, a fucking weird alt-right almost dude, um, Mm. to, like, with all his, like, very hard-right conservative ideals, um, they end up, I think, treating him in a slightly more sympathetic way in the movie, in a way that's detrimental. I do agree with you. Uh, especially on the Rorschach bit, but I don't know that audiences, in all honesty, general movie-going audiences who don't know the source material, would be able to get behind a character of like Rorschach how he is in the book. In the book, he is—he's clearly a—I mean, he's clearly a psychopath. I mean, he really, truly is a sociopathic psychopath who is a killer. He kills bad people. He's basically the Punisher without guns. But he does it so indiscriminately and so violently and so with this his own moralistic sense, you know, like you said, very, very right sort of sense of morals that I don't know a character like that would necessarily translate to the screen well enough in a post sort of 9-11 America or cinemas. Right. I, I agree with that. And I think the problem with the movie is the fact that it wants to have its cake and eat it too in terms of like, oh, we're going to do so many things exactly like the book, but change these things that are like extremely crucial. Like, he wants to, like, oh, it's so faithful, but also I kind of want to change this little bit. Where it's, like, either change so much and make it your own, or do your fucking exact, like, panel-for-panel shit. Like, do one or the other. I think that's what makes this one so confusing as just, like, a an adaptation. Where it wants both, and I don't think it achieves either that well, personally. In a way, um, Zack Snyder's Rorschach is exactly what is a great precursor to Zack Snyder's take on Batman. Because his Rorschach feels like what the most edgelord of fanboys want their Batman to be. Yep. 
No, I, I don't disagree with either of you. In, in fact, I think we're pretty much all in agreement, but uh, other than the simple fact that the movie was going to get made and he was given or he was granted or given or whatever he chose to do, film the impossible. Take a source material that is just been long gestating since it was released and that everybody has said, this is, you just can't make this. And he tried. Uh, he did fail on a lot of things. The core story is there. The the characters, even the Rorschach, yes, they you know making him sympathetic. I do believe is a huge disservice, but it's still Rorschach. You still get it. It's still the same character for the most part. For people who aren't never read the source material, this would work perfectly for them. I I think. I mean, I could see that to some degree. I mean, I remember when I saw it in the theater at the time. I saw it with a friend who was just very kind of confused by it. It's a lot because of, like, some of these weird tonal shifts that are kind of there. Where, I mean, it's hard for me to, like, see it from that perspective. Even even before I saw the movie in the theaters, I read the graphic novel. But it still feels like, at the same time, like, they, they change all these, like, sort of small, crucial things. Even down to, um, just to go more into the ending. But I have so much difficulty about, or at least framing it around, like, Dr. Manhattan gets framed and all this other crap like that. It's just the fact that... In the whole impetus for uh, Ozymandias doing this scheme with the fucking giant squid is that an unknown entity comes into frame that everyone's blindsided by, and that's at least what he thinks will unite everybody. Um, as opposed to in the practice of doing Dr. Manhattan, it's kind of like, you know, and especially when we're dealing with like Richard Nixon, and I'm guessing there's like a Gorbachev or some other variant on the other side um, for the USSR, it just kind of feels like, in any other circumstance where it's like, oh, hey, our big nuclear arsenal thing, our, um, what America has, this Dr. Manhattan thing, they lost control of it. What a bunch of fucking idiots the enemies are. I can't believe they fucked this up so hard. Lol. That's not good. Like, they would have no sympathy about this, I would argue. Especially when we're dealing with like, colder, calculated like leaders that they're kind of trying to portray in this particular world. As opposed to something completely blindsides out of nowhere. Like, oh my god, just like a fucking weird squid monster. That I would argue that at least like would have some initial togetherness. That Even though the whole point is that that's not going to be a lasting thing. Um, for, like, all your nations to unite over that. I at least believe that more than, like, oh, we... Like, look at right now, where, like, whenever North Korea fucks up with a nuclear test launch, we have, a, you know, a certain leader in our fucking White House who'd just be like, what a bunch of amateurs, they fucked it up. We're great. I, I think that's what we get more of. I think the real missed opportunity with, with the Zack Snyder ending, because, like I said, I do like it, uh, but I think a good sort of continue on from after the attack happens is that, yeah, the the world re- all united, but against America, I think would have been a brave choice. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, everyone was attacked mm-hmm. the same as we were, but it still would be our fucking fault that it happened. Yeah, because they keep saying, referring to Dr. Manhattan as the very real Superman, who is American. So that would really hammer it home, and that would have been a more interesting choice, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I, that would be a better ending, Adam, I agree. That's not the ending that he did. So <laughs> that's that's kind of the problem. But um, regardless, I, I do just to put some praise behind the movie to some degree. Um, I do agree that certain times when we create things, it looks perfect. Like the Dr. Manhattan uh, origin sequence since the mm. Philip Glass score, I do think is phenomenally put together. And I think that's an example where like they keep it close to the graphic novel, but also keep true to the spirit of sort of the awe and the sort of intimidation of him being that way. Like Billy Crudup in that role, fine, even though the, my biggest problem with the voice, and it's, this is kind of shallow, but it's still, it's the fucking, it's the MasterCard voice. 
I'm waiting for Dr. Manhattan to say, like, priceless. <laughs> Every <laughs> fucking time he says something. <laughs> well, I do think that's the best scene in the movie. Uh, that whole Easily. scene. Yeah, it's, it's fucking fantastic. Especially, I do like his monologue. And, I, you know, his voice has such a cold sort of one-note tone. Like, even when he is not playing Dr. Manhattan, Billy Crudup's voice fluctuation doesn't really have one. So I, I think it works sort of perfect for this character, where it's very emotionalist. Yeah, um, and, you know, you know, him being with like I love seeing behind the scenes of him with like all the suit that has all the LED lights and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, a lot of credit for him at least being able to craft that part, you know, and even the effects still hold up really well for Doctor Manhattan mm-hmm. despite being like over ten years. Yeah, it's a pretty fully formed character. Yeah, it still works. Yeah. So at the same time, like the relationship between him and Alan Ackerman, I still would argue doesn't even work in the weird way it's supposed to in the graphic novel, and just certain other like we haven't mentioned like my biggest casting issue, honestly, and I love this actress but carla gugino having putting her in that old mage makeup and having her do like some fucking elizabeth taylor shit just doesn't work <laughs> why do that i don't understand why they put her in that dreadful makeup and she's supposed to be like i think in her 70s at this point in the story like mid 60s 70s somewhere around there yeah and the only thing they did was just give her like a turkey neck <laughs> like there you go turkey neck and a gray wig and it's like, and I love him when he was dying. Like, what the fuck? Is, what happened to her? <laughs> like, it's just, it's, yeah, I agree. Terrible. Well, terrible old age makeup. When it's done, it's just laughable. And this is, I, yes. Especially in the, the director's cut, they actually have the phone conversation between her and Stephen McCady, who's actually, like, that old. And it's so yeah. awkward that she's like, oh, we've known each other for years. No, you haven't. <laughs> he was born no, at least a solid 10 years before you. <laughs> I quite like Billy Crudup when he in as Doctor Manhattan. I think he that he gives enough where you believe in the f- bits of emotion which are cracking through his seemingly emotionless visage. Ozymandias, I think less so. Like I like Matthew Good. I think he's a talented performer, but that accent is so distracting. Oh, especially the the two accents. That's the big thing. Yes. And in public, he does like a more traditional kind of American accent. And then later on, he has like this sort of Germanic thing that's going on. I would agree with like the bigger people. He's the worst casting choice. Just because the moment you see him, it's like, oh, he's a villain. The whole point of Ozymandias is supposed to be like this sort of almost in a similar way, like a Captain America type figure that comes in just like, I am, you know, like uh, this big, muscular, Elon Musk-type character who's just, like, gonna save everybody with my technology and all this other stuff. And in practice, his version of it, like, he doesn't have that particular ambiance to, like, really make his turn all the more interesting later. And just stupid stuff of, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a comic book villain as opposed to a serial villain. It's just like that. It makes it so much more fucking obvious and stupid. <laughs> See, I just like Matthew Good a lot as an actor, period. I actually quite like him in this movie. I think his... His weird accents almost add to the character, where he's just, he's so just, he's an elitist. He's an elite fucking prick. And, you know, the thing is, yeah, he clearly is a villain, but it sort of works to the character, where you're like, this guy, he thinks he's so much better and so much smarter than everyone, because he is. And it just, to me, it works for the character very, very much. I I actually thoroughly enjoy Matthew Good in this. And I will take uh, issue with anybody who says otherwise. So, James, Thomas, get mm-hmm. the fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you, you go ahead and host this and edit everything. You'll do a great Say job, Say it to I'm me sure. in a Germanic accent. 
Yes, you're fine. Oh, Bell Brooks. <laughs> Basically. Um, but I mean, I get at least that he's attempting something. I think everyone is. I, this is such a movie on such like a big grand scale. It's a Herculean task to do this movie, obviously, especially to try and make it as faithful as possible is like, it's something that, you know, it's, it's hard to try and do. And I respect everybody for trying to do it. But at the same time, I just think like it has so many clear indicators of like, Oh, you didn't quite want to actually do that on a surface level. You really wanted to do that. But when you actually get down to the nitty gritty of like all the themes of graphic novel, that make it so interesting and intriguing and still work. I would argue to this day, it feels like it's just, it doesn't really want to like put the work in to make that stuff like hit quite as hard. And I think especially even, like, down to the color palette, which Zack Snyder loves the sapiotone shit. And I just think, like... He loves it. Like, he is nuts over it. That that filter, though, on Instagram is his favorite. And I just think, in practice, like, I love that in the original graphic novel, it's so colorful to offset the darkness that's going on. I will give you that. It should have been more colorful, this movie. Real Mm -hmm. vibrant and bright. And I would have loved to have seen Ozymandias in a purple tunic. Yeah. How awesome would that have been? Like, I do agree. There are things that... Yeah. All right. Well, now you guys are kind of fucking swaying me here, and I don't really like. <laughs> I don't like anything that I believe in. Challenge. So. Hooray! <laughs> Conversion. <laughs> um, I I just think like some of these key things that they end up changing just really lessen it to some degree, and even just like they go so cartoony with certain things. Like I fucking hate the dude who they got to play Richard Nixon. I fucking hate <laughs> that makeup too. I mean, what the fuck? Right, right to like portray older Richard Nixon. It's just like, oh man, I I believe fucking Anthony Hopkins more. He wasn't doing a Nixon impression in that movie. He didn't have a dick for a nose either. No, he didn't. It's just it, it, that's the thing. It sort of wants to draw this weird line where it's like, oh no, we're being like an edgy, serious, treat this right kind of comic book movie, but then also we're going to the cartoonish territory that isn't balanced very well whatsoever. I think throughout all of this. Um, it veers like Dick Tracy territory, but then wants to be like, no, we're like a Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movie <laughs> to some degree as well. It just, that's the thing is it, it feels so much like I don't think Zack Snyder was the right person to do this. But then again, also to Adam's credit, I do agree that you can't really adapt this graphic novel so closely. And I think that's sort of the problem is I would prefer somebody like not adapting it so closely because the graphic novel works so well in graphic novel form. I think, you know, there's this whole thing of like, oh, we want to see something done shot for shot, panel for panel, beat for beat. They're like, it works for a Sin City, but I don't think in this case necessarily would work because it's such a form that fits for comics. And if anything, they should have done more big swings. Like, I love the opening sequence. We haven't talked about that. But the whole opening montage set to the Bob Dylan song. That's a great addition. Perfect. Perfect. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. Right. That's a great example. Like, typical contention. Right, where, like, it doesn't exactly follow the graphic novel, but that's sort of the strength of it, it still evokes a lot of the same things. That's what I prefer with adaptation, honestly. It's just, like, we have the graphic novel. It's there. We can read it any time. I just read it again. It works great on the page. But if you're going to, like, stick to so many things so true, but also change things like this, it's you, you got to pick one side or the other, or else it ends up becoming, I think, a tonal mess like this movie is, despite how, like, the story makes sense. A lot of things are so close, but it feels in that way, it's like a fan film. It, it's, a, it's a fucking fan film more than is like, a movie. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful contrast between poetry and... Yeah. Poetry, like, calm down. <laughs> I'm not Walt Whitman over here fucking talking about watching. <laughs> Can I ask, what did you think of, the, in the Ultimate Cut, the inclusion of expanding on hollis and including his death into the story 
when I first watched this, I'm like, oh, perfect. They add, and it's so great. But I think in practice, especially the death scene, the way it's portrayed, it's another example of, like, Zack Snyder glorifying that that character and the background where, like, he does the whole, like, as he's dying, he's getting murdered by those thugs, he has this one last fight, and he imagines he's back and, like, oh, yeah, I'm beating up crooks, and that's what's so great. The whole point of the story is that wasn't a great time, and that wasn't a great thing to do. You were being vigilantes, even if Hollis is, like, arguably the most, like, sort of sympathetic of those older Minutemen characters, that still is just, like, you're over-grandizing, like, it's, this isn't a story about how superheroes are awesome. It's a story about how they kind of suck, and it's kind of a bummer that they exist in a real world. <laughs> I quite liked it when I first saw it as well. I'm not a huge fan of it now, but just simply because I think it's just adds too much to an already long movie. Especially when Hollis is barely a character in the movie. The right. Way that it's done. Right. It's like we didn't necessarily need that. It's weird where you have a moment like that, and earlier on we had like the whole horrible rape scene that happens with the comedian. It's, it's another just once again, it's this weird thing where it's just like, oh, remember those good old days? No, they were bad days. That's the fucking point. <laughs> right. I, we've talked a lot about Watchmen, so I guess it's good as any time to go into final thoughts here. James, once again, our guest, your final thoughts on Zack Snyder's Watchmen. I think when it comes to adapting Watchmen and making a film out of it, it we certainly could have gotten something a hell of a lot worse. Could we have got something better? I think the potential is there, just maybe not to follow the graphic novel so to the exact panel, to the exact page. And I especially think that after Damon Lindelof's show, which I think was exceptional, in the space of a week, I watched the theatrical cut and the ultimate cut. And I went in open-minded, hoping for the best, but I just don't think they did it well. But I will say, talked a lot about dicks tonight, but fair play to the studio for allowing that much full frontal nudity especially when a lot of studios seem so uneager to put the slightest bit of male genitalia but they will happily praise the female body in its naked visage adam your final thoughts on Zack Snyder's watchman you know the thing is i still really like it i when i saw it in the show i i absolutely loved it as time goes on and i've seen it several more times I've noticed more and more problems with it, of course, but I still absolutely do thoroughly enjoy it. I think the the better performances are strong enough to almost carry the whole movie. I think the visual effects are pretty spectacular. The cinematography is not bad either. It's very Zack Snyder looking, but that's what you get when you get a Zack Snyder movie. That's never going to change. I mean, that's just all of his movies are always going to look the same. They're always going to be the flashy, sepia-toned, slow-mo, sped up. I do still thoroughly enjoy it, though. I, I think it's the best, at this time, possible version we could get of the graphic novel. Now, is that to say that another version, a better version, doesn't exist out there or could be done? No, not at all. In fact, I, I'm willing to bet we'll get another version in five to ten years. They'll give somebody a new shot, you know, and it'll be some up-and-comer, and he'll blow us all away. Or we'll be like, fuck, man, we used to hate the Zack Snyder one, but woo. Like, you know, it, it's going to go one or two ways, but I do think we'll get a, another version of it, uh, especially based on the strength of the critical claim of the, the HBO series. And, you know, the thing about the source material, it's always prescient. It always feels prescient and it always feels like it could relate to our current times, especially with what we're all going through as a, as a world and as especially, you know, no offense 
fucking James, but as an American nation right now, as it being set in America. But for what it is, this movie, the Zack Snyder version, I think it's the best version we could get up until now. I mean, I said a lot of my final thoughts, like my big sort of rant that I ended up doing a bit earlier in the show. Um, But I will still say that, like, I think what made this so especially, like, sort of at least praised at the time was we were coming off at that point of a lot of comic adaptations that were not at all close to what the stories were and arguably fucked it up more than not in terms of like any different, you know, um, either graphic novel adaptations or versions of different characters that had been in like ongoing series. I feel like this got a lot of praise even for me at the time because like, oh wow, it's so close. And now with another decade of comic book movies that have come out, I've vastly preferred ones that take ideas from certain comics or from these things but actually adapt them cinematically. Because if you're going to make Watchmen a cinematic or in the case of Damon Love saying a TV thing you have to like really i think adapt it for that medium the whole point of that story is that it feels satiric to whatever like sort of superhero dumb or comics in general or in the case of like movies tv shows whatever you have to make it sort of like a satiric take on that medium and make like adapt the ideas to that and i think the the problem with this movie really is that it doesn't want to quite do that it wants to make this like somewhat of a mainstream movie, and it wants also wants to make it like exactly very close to the graphic novel too. Wants to have its cake and eat it too kind of thing. And I don't think it ends up working as successfully as it could have. I wouldn't say it's like obviously Zack Snyder's worst movie because we've gotten like other shit. But I think this is much more of a canary in the coal mine for like a lot of his worser decisions with like Man of Steel and Batman v Superman than people give it credit for. Because in those movies, like they have certain bits where it's like, oh, well, this is so close to like the Dark Knight Returns or or uh, All Star Superman stuff like that. They have certain key moments that work, but then he doesn't get the ideas of those characters that true whatsoever. And I think this movie has a lot of those problems that would uh, become far worse as time went along. But we, uh, you know, Warner Brothers galvanized him because you made three hundred, you made five hundred million dollars off this like weird Frank Miller story, and uh, it all went fucking even more downhill <laughs> from here. But that is the end of our discussion of our two movies, but we still have some other things to say before we do our picking at the end of the show for our next week's episode, so stay tuned for that. First, we had some feedback to read uh, from people who, every Monday on at Pod, we ask you, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? And so uh, we asked all you, and some people responded here. Uh, Oliver Sloan says, best Kingsman, in terms of graphic novel adaptations, worst wanted. Uh, Rachel Hillis says, uh, best Watchmen v. for Vendetta, worst League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, which, to my opinion, could only really be done to justice as a TV show. Um, then Elliot T. Schott says, uh, worst League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, though it was entertaining in parts, and then though it's a loose adaptation slash condensation of the series, Constantine aged like a fine wine, especially compared to the shit NBC show that they attempted. I gotta agree about Constantine. It's, yeah... Not best ad- adaptation of the blonde Brit, but it's a wonderful neo-noir with demons and exorcisms. And I especially love that low-key finale. And I like Keanu in a role. Yeah, I wasn't mad at Constantine either. I do like, uh, forgive me, I can't think of his name, but the the actor who does play the Matt TV Ryan. I do like Matt Ryan's Constantine as well. Not necessarily his show, but his portrayal of the character, especially in guest spots on the other, you know, DC, EU, television, whatever the fuck universe now it's called. Uh, I think he's quite good in that role. And I also agree with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I, it is not at all a faithful adaptation. It is quite a shitty movie. But I'll be damned if not every time that's on, I'll just watch it. 
because it's flashy and it's entertaining and it's silly. It's one of the more watchable sort of of those like really infamously bad kind of uh, comic movies of that time. I, I will say that um, because you got like Sean Connery not giving a shit and then subverted not with like a bunch of other people giving too much of a shit almost with what they're trying to do. Like I, the guy who plays fucking Dorian Gray in that movie is so silly. I think it's Stuart something. I, I know what you're talking about. Fucking town. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, the guy who was going to be um, Aragorn until yes. Vigo like came in the last second. What bullet we dodged? But that yeah, he was, he was shitty, uh, shitty Lestat and Queen of the Damned. That's true. He was also that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but I mean, also some of these other ones that are mentioned. I remember really liking V for Vendetta at the time, but I want to try and read the graphic novel before I go and revisit it because I've heard similar kind of like back and forth about it's like that. Very different. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially because, like, I know that they kind of adapted it more to, like, W. Bush times as opposed to that being very Thatcher, right? It, well, yes, and the uh, Evie character, mm-hmm. Natalie Portman's character, not that important in the book. Oh. So. So she's more of a audience surrogate. She's a straight-up prostitute in the book. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, she's a completely different character, too. But but do you, do you prefer them the graphic novel or the movie in that case? I like them both. I like them both equally, and I, I, you know, obviously you can't separate them because the whole idea. Uh, but they are they are pretty vastly different, in my opinion. Uh, but I do like both. I think V for Vendetta in the movie is kind of a really cool, sort of slick look at the future, and you know, everybody's in their black suits. It's very like like Equilibrium type, where you know everyone's in their black suits and they're all fascists and everything. So, I mean, I... I like, 1984 Fahrenheit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, so, I like it. It's not the worst. It's not the best. But it's entertaining. And, you know, I'll say, um, the, someone mentioned Wanted, which was my alternate choice, which I haven't read the graphic novel, but I do, am aware that it's a completely different story. And even then, as someone who didn't read it, like, I, that movie was so praised by, like, kids around my age, uh, that movie, and I don't think it holds up very well. I've seen in the last, like, few years, I'm just like, oh, no, this is just, like really fucking like misogynistic and dick swinging and fucking stupid <laughs> the graphic novel is worse the characters are straight up super villains and let's just say there's a lot of sexual assault in it from from mark millar never what are you talking oh. about <laughs> he never does that but 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 at least that premise of them being like super villains is at least more interesting than badass assassins Mm. I just I don't I don't really give a shit. They can curve a fucking bullet. That's dumb <laughs> to me. I completely agree, completely, completely agree. Uh, you know, and I wasn't a huge fan of the source material on that one either. Uh, in the movie, my wife likes it, so I've seen it a couple times. But she likes it because she's got a crush on James McAvoy, of course. But who doesn't? But I, uh, you know, it's it's okay. Again, it's it's watchable. I'm. I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's just, if it's on, I'll watch it. It's a shitty action movie. Okay, mm. fine. With Mark Miller, I think he's great at concepts, but when it comes to execution, he's shit. He's very dude bro. Yeah, exactly. And he freely uses sexual assault, as Thomas alluded to. And it's not really until a competent filmmaker takes the baton and does something with it that we actually get the promise kind of realized. Yeah, like particularly Matthew Vaughn with he did both Kingsman and Kick-Ass. Mm. Uh, 
And I would argue those are definitely ones I prefer them to. Um, especially, I haven't read Kingsman, but Kick-Ass, I definitely vastly prefer his film version. Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would definitely say so. And then, But then again, those movies have had, like, Kick-Ass 2 came along that wasn't made by him. And that feels more like a Mark Millar story, because it's kind of fucking vapid and stupid. And it has but, an awful sexual assault scene. Yep, that they try and play for comedy, because, oh no, he can't get it up. Get it? Ah! Waka waka. Waka waka. <laughs> Kingsman 2, which was Donward hit by him, and I felt just as shit. Now, Kingsman 2 is not good, especially in comparison to the uh, to the first. Mm. But I don't think it's that bad. I think Kingsman 2's problem is it's about a half hour too long. Kingsman 2 is a very long movie for no reason. I think the problem with Kingsman 2 is they have a great cast and they're like, oh no, we'll just shuffle you to the side and let Elton John take a role. Yeah, but what the hell? <laughs> That's the thing. It's th- Those movies... They're so in the realm of just ridiculousness that it doesn't bother me when they go a little too much. Because like, it already has the groundwork of this just ridiculous idea and story. So, what the hell? I, I think, yeah, I agree that I think the bigger problem with Kingsman is just that it's very bloated, but also it I think it just kind of does a lot of repetition of the same sort of, like, stuff from the first movie. It feels like, yeah. oh, this is a limited kind of, like, <laughs> prospect we could do. I like the idea of them doing the prequel, though, which is interesting to me. I'm curious. Yeah, especially interestingly, that wasn't originally meant to be a Kingsman movie. Um, but I do also want to say, I did actually get a chance to watch your alternative choice, Adam, of History of Violence, before mm-hmm. we um, th- recorded the show. And I'm kind of in the camp of, like, it's a bit overrated. I like it. Um, but I do also think it's a very thin premise. Like, I could see this as, as a graphic novel being kind of similar to Road to Perdition, in terms of, like, it feels kind of thin as a story. Um, and I, I, but at the same time, I do like. I think the cast is pretty good, except for the guy who plays the son. That was my pick. I fucking hate. Yeah, he's that terrible. Kid. No, yeah, I don't like that. Kid. He's the weird like mid evolution between like Killian Murphy and Jesse Eisenberg. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like him either. One thing about history of violence, like, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's like one of the greatest either. I just think it's an underseen one, and I, I like it enough. I don't think it's the best, but there's a lot of strong performances in it. Like I fucking. Even though William Hurt's in it for, like, five minutes, he absolutely steals the movie. I completely agree with that. He's so good. Like, especially, I'm not a huge Hurt fan, and I think this is, like, one of the few times I've seen him, like, oh, he has life in him. He's actually playing, like, a... He's so good. Uh, it's just, especially the bit of, like, how do you fuck that up? How yeah. do you do it? Yeah, you cost me. <laughs> a hell of a lot. You look like you're doing okay. Yeah, I am. I'm doing good. <laughs> <laughs> And and being nominated for only, like, it's eight minutes of screen time. Yeah, and he got nominated. He should have been. He was yeah. fucking fantastic. And Ed Harris. I mean, is he not always intimidating when he tries to be? And, and especially with, with, with that makeup of, like, the scarring, it looks perfect. Um, yeah, he's great. And even Vigo being just, like, middle town kind of America. I think mm-hmm. my, my problem is just more, like, I don't quite believe as much of those relationships with, like, him and his wife, Maria Bello. I like Maria Bello in it, but I don't believe their chemistry quite as much early on. I, like, a I lot agree. of the setup, I don't think, quite works as well until, like, we get the the violence, which they, they deliver on the title. Like, especially that one dude who gets, like, shot in the diner, and then, he, like, C- Stephen McCady, um, yeah. and, he, and his fucking j- lower jaw is like, <laughs> that's just like, oh my god, this is classic Cronenberg, <laughs> yeah, like, body horror. Yeah, it's graphic. Uh, we did also have a bit of feedback, though, um, from Jeff L., that's just uh, more about our recent episode, um, where he says, I caught both of you on the horror returns, and I'm now listening to your episode on Stuart Gordon. 
always great to hear both of you stay healthy. And we appreciate that, Jeff, obviously. Always when you mm-hmm. chime in. And yeah, stuff like thanks, that. buddy. But uh, now, of course, uh, before we do our picking, we need to do some thank yous. Like to all of you who submitted that feedback, thank you all for submitting that. But also we want to thank uh, Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used on our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thanks to, of course, Mr. James Rodriguez for coming back. Always great to have you, James. Where can people find you doing stuff on the interwebs? Well, thank you guys for having me. If you want to find me, I'm on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at RoddersJ04. That's spelled with two Ds. I also write reviews on the reviewingrodders.co.uk. Yeah, I have a domain name now. Go me. I write reviews on there, and by the time this episode comes up, I should have an article listing comic book movies which are deserving of a watch. I'm also a contributor to flyfidelity.co.uk, and I'm an assistant editor on True Superhero Fans Only. So, that's good. Yes, which also I am uh, an editor on as well. Uh, we're, we're, we're co-workers, we're buddies over there. Um, but uh, you can also find us and our individual stuff um, over at DEDBpod. Uh, which is our Facebook and Twitter page where we put up those feelers asking about your thoughts on our topics and what are good and bad examples. And you can always email us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Uh, you can subscribe to us on our Patreon, as we mentioned. It's up there right now. Uh, Patreon.com slash DEDBpod. I'm sure we have like some kind of brief bit of audio to introduce you guys over there as well. You can also uh, find me on my own doing stuff at NotTheWho'sTommy on Twitter, Instagram, um, I do, as I mentioned, some writing for TwoSuperheroFans.com and also MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. That's where I do uh, some writing reviews and uh, posting up episodes of the show and all that. And uh, you can find Adam, you know, with uh, the Rorschach mask on him, just trying to search around for all the whores and the scum. They're all over. Yeah, I'm not doing anything. I, I, I just <laughs> pass. <laughs> for more impassioned takes like that, you can subscribe to us. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, other podcasting platforms. Of course, we're on the ESO network, and you can subscribe to all the other great shows on there. And uh, you can find our back catalog from before we even did anything with ESO over on our Podbean, our main feed. And if nothing else, if you can't subscribe to Patreon or anything like that, just a simple rate, review, or even uh, share around helps us with uh, visibility and gets us more out there in the ether. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> I need to just keep that audio clip for like whenever we do this bit and I throw it to yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. yeah! Fuck! This kind of content is why I keep wanting to come back. Yeah, this is what you pay for exclusively on the Patreon as well, of course. More content like that. Still not getting my money. <laughs> and well, we uh, want now... money. It's because we want money we can spend. You know, fucking. Whatever the hell you're going to offer us. You oh, offer you chickens. Your... Patreon isn't a barter system, James. You can't give us chickens. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I'll give you two hay pennies a month, sir. <laughs> uh, Fine, I'll give you lap dances. Well, we won't want that necessarily. We appreciate the offer. But what we could appreciate before you leave there is helping us doing the picking for next week. Because if you're new, every end of the show, Adam and I each have uh, two good or two bad choices, depending on who has whatever quality for each week. And uh, we randomly select, uh, based on each of us have both those movies, number between 1 and 10. And so the other picks number between 1 and 10 in order to get whatever close to a good and a bad feature we're doing. Um, And, you know, usually we do that for each other. But when we have a guest like James, they decide to go ahead and uh, choose, make the epic choices uh, for next week. So and uh, we decide, you know, as a topic, just to, like, really steer away from all this gory graphic novel content uh we're gonna do family movies 
as a topic. Uh-huh. Uh, specifically, we're going for live action, because we've done plenty of animated ones. Not too many live action family films, though. Adam, Mr. Family Man, right? Yeah, not that it's worth fucking watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have two of those good, bad ones, since that's yours for this week, and I have the two good ones. So, James, first for my two good choices, number between 1 and 10. Okay, I'm going to pick, based on the number of times I've watched Road to Perdition, the number 2. Well... I'm actually very happy about this. This is a movie I wanted to cover since we kind of started the show. And it's only fair for you to do it because uh, it's such a delightful British film. I have uh, 2018's Paddington 2. Oh! Oh! Okay, nice. Uh, Both of them are great, but I prefer 2 slightly more. Uh, Though, not to slouch, at number 8 I have a classic of my childhood and many others. The original 1971 Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah, well, that's... I'm glad we didn't get that. There's <laughs> <laughs> no Paddington 2. <laughs> that's, that's very true. But now, James, for his two bad ones. All right. Um, based on the amount of hours I spent watching Watchmen this week, I'm going to give you the, the number six. At number seven, I have the oft-referenced on our show, but never chosen, the Mike Myers cat in a hat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, golly. <laughs> yeah. At number one, I had the classic Mac and Me. <laughs> I would have vastly preferred Mac and Me. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> oh, boy. So, yeah, so Cat in the Hat and Paddington 2. Uh, two uh, delightful movies about furry creatures. Uh, one less delightful than the other. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> thank you for picking I'd, r- I'd rather watch the furry creature scene in The Shining. <laughs> A great family film, The Shining, obviously. <laughs> Uh, well, um, now we've been going pretty long in this particular episode, so on that note, uh, subscribe to us on Patreon. Please, like it. it's a thank you. Yes, thank you if you did already. Or don't. God damn it, James. Good night, everybody. <laughs> has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.